Lord Jesus, you are indeed the living word, the truth come to life. Lord our God, we pray that you would still in our hearts and minds any voice but that which is yours. Speak to us deeply. Call us to deeper discipleship in you. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I recently heard about a man and a woman, uh, husband and wife, that were not getting along very well. And in fact, they were giving each other the silent treatment. This had gone on for a few days when uh, he realized that he was going to need his wife's help to get up the next morning. He had to get up at about 5 o'clock in the morning for an early flight to Chicago. It was a business trip. Well, he didn't want to break the silence and so lose. So uh, he wrote a note. And uh, on the note he wrote, please wake me up at 5 o'clock. Well, the next morning came and he woke, but much to his surprise, it was 9 o'clock and here he'd missed his flight. Well, he was furious. So he threw the covers back and he was about to spring out of bed to let his wife have it when uh, there on the floor was a note. And on the note it said, it's 5 o'clock, wake up. I love that story because, you know, it it's just kind of brings to light sort of the silly games we play, you know, the, the things that we do to try and show uh, that we're right or, you know, to get our way. And, and it also shows sort of the extent that we're willing to go, you know, the cost we're willing, willing to endure for those things. Well, uh, I am very quick, I'd have to say at recognizing those qualities in other people. <laughs> but I'm a little slow to see that in myself. And let me just share with you a little bit about what I mean. About 10 years ago, I was making the transition from youth ministry to missions. And my family was really thrilled by that transition because it seems, you know, youth pastors spend a lot of evenings away. There's uh, committee meetings and there's youth events, overnights, retreats, mission trips, school events. So my family was really looking forward to a few more evenings at home uh, with me. Well, a couple of months after the transition happened, uh, I got a phone call uh, and was invited to speak at a college camp. Well, I was thrilled. And uh, so I couldn't wait to run this idea by my wife, which I did, and she wasn't very thrilled. So uh, I didn't honor her. uh, And so called the camp, said, sure, I'll go ahead and speak at the camp. Because uh, after all, my wife is a pastor's wife. She ought to understand God speaking to me and calling me to preach to these kids and call them to deeper faith in Jesus Christ, you know. Well, uh, I was in a Bible study, a covenant group with a bunch of guys who were all my age, and I ran this by them, and they said, well, you know, consensus was, yeah, she's just being a stick in the mud. You know, you're right, you're right. <laughs> so I, I did ask her if I could tell this story ahead of time. She said, <laughs> So I was feeling pretty justified, and I was walking through the malls around Christmas time, and I happened to run into a man who's a mentor for me, particularly in the area of marriage. He's a lot older than me, a lot wiser than I am, and he's been married for about 40 years. He said, how's it going? I said, well, let me tell you. And I told him about the camp and the invitation to speak, my wife's attitude. You know, she doesn't want, and he just interrupted me, stopped me right there. He said, so why are you going? Just hit me right between the eyes, you know. 
Because truth be told, there were a bunch of other people that could have spoke at that camp. And uh, truth be told, I was just missing kids. And I just wanted to feel important and needed and to be speaking, you know, all that stuff. And I was willing to do that at the cost and sacrifice of my family. Paul says in this passage, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Self-ambition, self-interest, and conceit, uh, boy, they're all symptoms of our, of our culture. In fact, our culture encourages those things. Life around us is so much more uh, about obtaining more, achieving more, striving for more, becoming more. You know, being at the top, being recognized. And being willing more and more to endure the sacrifices, the cost of the sacrifices that get us there. Well, many times we just get swept into that, don't we? At least I do, because it's, it's so easy to do so. Our culture paints those pieces, self-conceit and ambition, as, as virtues. But really, they're costing us. There's a high cost to a life that follows those things that closely. And it's only too often that we don't recognize the cost that we're paying until it's too late. And life, we feel burnt out, our marriage gets broken down, families get broken apart, and we're left not knowing what to do. Well, Paul in this passage gives us an anecdote for, for this kind of life. Because you see, these aren't virtues for us, they're robbing us, they're stealing our joy. And they're breaking us down. They're, they're turning what God has, has meant for good and blessing into something that's hurtful and painful. So Paul gives us an antidote by looking at the descent of Jesus Christ from all of heaven to the cross itself. And he calls us to be imitators of Christ. Be imitators of Christ's humility, Christ's obedience, and Christ's service. So uh, in, if you want to just follow along, we're going to go through the scripture together. In verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the very form of a slave. Now, the key word in this passage is this word that we read here, empty. And the idea that it conveys is that of pouring out a substance from a jar or a container until that substance is absolutely emptied out of the jar or the container. I think that's a powerfully descriptive way of illustrating the cost of the incarnation to Jesus Christ. Just think about it. The Almighty God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, emptying Himself, giving it all up, exchanging the praise of the angels for the sharp criticism of men. He came to seek and to save us inevitably taking on Himself the price of all of our sin and redeeming us so that we are once again in right relationship with God. It's unthinkable. It's unimaginable. But He did it. He gave up all the power, all the status, all the rights that were exclusively His as the second person of the Trinity of God, and He emptied Himself in order to what? Be humiliated and put to death on a cross. It's just absolutely astounding when you think about it. 
He humbled himself, the scripture says. And in doing so, Jesus changed the course of human history, one life at a time. Now, uh, humility liberates us because it sets us free to draw closer to God, to be more and more filled with Him, to be more and more instructed by Him, and so more and more to be like Him, to be like God. Now, in my early years of ministry, I had the privilege of working with people who, because of life circumstances, had come to a place of recognizing their desperate need for God. And they had a slogan or a saying that they held out whenever facing, uh, uh, you know, a number of situations in life. And perhaps you've heard of it. They would say, let go, let God. You heard that before? Let go of selfish ambition. Let go of self-interest. Let go of worry. Let go of our need to control. Let go of resentment. Let go. And let God be in charge. Let Jesus be Lord. It's humility. Emptying ourselves of our own need to succeed and relying instead on God's sovereignty and grace. Well, humility is God's antidote. And uh, when Jesus was teaching the crowds, there was a time when the children started to come to him. You remember this story? Children were coming to him and the disciples, boy, they're, they're always sharp and on the ball, aren't they? These children are coming, and, and what are the disciples doing? But they're, they're, they're turning the children away, because after all, Jesus is for adults. He's not for children. And so here are these children, and Jesus sees this, and he becomes indignant. And he, he pulls one of these children aside, and he holds them up as a lesson to the disciples by saying, The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child then you will not be able to enter. You see, children have this wonderful, teachable spirit, don't they? They're so influenceable. They're so ready to follow the people that they've placed in a, in a position of trust in their lives, aren't they? And, and they receive such tremendous comfort by just being in the presence of the one that they've entrusted. And Jesus holds that out to us as a picture of life with him. A life that starts with humility that we would just empty ourselves in order that we can receive the blessing of an intimate relationship with Him who emptied Himself in order to reveal the glory of God to each of us. Jesus humbled Himself, the Scripture says. Well, Paul moves on in the passage, and he moves on in verse 8 to say, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I think one of the most amazing Amazing truths about the incarnation itself and about the descent of Jesus from all of heaven to the cross itself is that at any place Jesus could have, he could have disobeyed. He could have gone a different road. He could have avoided the cross. He could have called on all the angels in heaven to to sort of derail the whole thing so that he didn't have to endure the humiliation and the pain of the cross. Now, that would have thrown heaven into quite an ordeal, wouldn't it? You know, uh, change of plan up here, you know. But, uh, but he didn't do that. Because Jesus made it crystal clear in his life that he only had one allegiance, and that was to God himself. That Jesus would be completely obedient to God throughout his ministry, throughout his life. 
Now, obedience is a word that has uh, lost interest, I believe, in our world these days. It, it's not a sexy word anymore, you know, it, because obedience seems to imply right and wrong. And, our, and in our culture that uh, doesn't embrace uh, any sort of ultimate truth, we like to have options, don't we? A little uh, Wheaties this morning and maybe tomorrow Captain Crunch. Now, life is, life is a little more complicated than that. And the choices that we face each and every day are a little more serious than what cereal are we going to eat. Most serious things happen in the day after cereal, don't they? But uh, the question is, where does obedience fit into that? Where does obedience fit into our everyday life? The critical piece to understand about Jesus' obedience is that it's built on the theological foundation of sovereignty, God's sovereignty. That is to say that God is in charge, God rules and God reigns. That God has created the heavens and the earth and God has this incredibly desperate love affair with all those he's created. Even more, God hasn't given up on a single one who's rejected him. And so with the coming of Christ, God radically broke into human history creating opportunity for salvation. And then Jesus commissioned the church, commissioned the church to be God's light, to be God's instrument of change in the world, and to go to all people everywhere, making disciples. You and I are God's instruments. We are to be sort of the visible demonstration of God's love, of God's light to the world around us. And where obedience fits into the picture is that each and every day, in our work settings, in our neighborhoods, wherever we are, we have the option to be obedient, to allow the light and the love of Christ to just burst through us, or we have the option to disobey and to go a separate way. You have to be careful, because obedience has its distractions. I just want to share with you a little bit about what I mean there. About uh, five years ago, I, I was in a church, a very faithful church in Mill Creek, about a half hour from here. I had been in that church about ten years. Uh, the church had been encouraging me to take a sabbatical. So I opted to do that and particularly to study the whole area of evangelism. I promised to them, my pledge was that I would come back with a plan for evangelism for the church. Well, during one of the legs of my sabbatical, I was down in Pasadena, California. I was studying in a class called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. Uh, the class was nothing like I would have expected. It absolutely revolutionized my thinking and my theology. Uh, it lifted my heart. And through that, I sensed God calling me to help mobilize others, help others get involved with God's great mission plan for the world around us and for the community around us. Well, I came back from that study down in Pasadena, all fired up, and there was this letter then on my desk at home from a fellow by the name of Jack Roos, uh, here at this church, who at the time was the, well, he was the chair of the Mission Pastor Search Committee for First Press Bellevue. Well, the timing was uh, a little uncanny. I just, you know, seemed like a God moment. So I called Jack. I said, uh, you know, my, my dossier is a little outdated by 10 years. And, uh, but I'd be interested. I wanted to connect with what God was doing, and uh, so I would send the information. But over time, I began to get a little more connected with the sabbatical. In fact, I was up to my neck with uh, the sabbatical and evangelism, trying to do this plan. 
And uh, I was in Chicago now for another leg of the of the tour of the of the sabbatical. Uh, and the drop dead date for getting that information to Jack, well, it came and it went. And at first I hadn't given it any mind, any thought. But then I found I was having trouble sleeping at night. <laughs> you know, I was kind of wrestling and turning. And then uh, then I remember just being convicted that. Maybe for the first time in my ministry, I had deliberately disobeyed God and passed up an opportunity. Maybe there was something more that God wanted to do in my life. So I remember praying and confessing all that to the Lord. Well, the next day I called my wife and she said to me, uh, after I you know, shared this whole thing, she said, well, you know, Jack called today and he wants to know if you're going to apply for this position or what. Well, uh, you know the story now, the end of the story, here I am. But the point of this, uh, I just see so clearly, is God calls us to obedience, to imitate the example of Christ, to be obedient. And even when somehow we miss the track, even when somehow we, we move off and, and, and we've chosen for a moment to disobey, well, then God offers grace. And I like what uh, Scott Dudley said a few weeks ago. He said, God's yes, God always has one more yes than we have no. God is quick to restore. God is quick to call us to obedience and to restore us to a place where we can serve. Well, the third piece then in terms of imitating Christ that uh, that Paul calls us to is the aspect of imitating uh, that comes in service. Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, or as other translations use this word, uh, they say servant. Now, one of the most supreme examples of Scripture, of Jesus' servanthood, is in John chapter 13. And there you may remember, Jesus, uh, it was the night that he was betrayed. He was urgent in teaching his disciples, reminding them of the critical core components of ministry. And so he wraps a towel around himself, drops to his knees, and washes their feet. It's a tremendous example But more than that, it points to the fact that our God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is always the servant God who is redeeming us, who is saving us, who is connecting with life itself to bring us joy and intimacy and fellowship. Well, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to go to Cambodia, and I went with a a partnership our church is in with Westminster Overlay Christian and, uh, and this church here. And uh, we went, one of the facets that we did was to teach some of the pastors in that area. A number of those pastors have had no formal theological education whatsoever. And so uh, there they were, and they asked us ahead of time if we would focus in on the area of leadership. Now, as we studied this area, we thought, boy, what do we want to do? But to teach them about servant leadership. And then this image of the foot washing came to us, and we thought, boy, that is a piece that just brings it all together. So there we were, we were in country, and the person leading this did just a great job. And these, these pastors, they broke up into groups of fours and fives, and they had little towels around them, and there they were gathered around bins, and they're taking their, uh, taking their sandals off, and they're starting to wash each other's feet. It was just powerful. Because it brought together the humility, stooping, and the obedience, working out in ministry, and the sacrifice and servanthood of it all. It was a very touching moment. Well, I was sitting with my colleagues talking, and, and this little this Cambodian man came over to me, and he was kind of stooped over, and he had a basin and a towel, and, and he just started to bow, and and he and he started to reach, you know, motion to my feet, 
And I, you know, no, not my feet, not me. But then I was remembering John's, uh, you know, this whole passage from John chapter 13. And I didn't say it to him. But then I, you know, I started to think of Peter and how Peter had said, Lord, not my feet. And Jesus had said, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. So I put my feet out and he brought the basin underneath. And all I could think about, I mean, the roles just switched. No longer was I teacher, but I was student. And I just saw in him the image and the face of Jesus Christ. So that as he gently took my feet in his hand, all I could think about was Jesus gently dealing with those who mocked him and spit on him and and hung him up on a cross. And as the water poured over my feet, all I could think about was Christ's blood washing over, spilling over the, the timbers of the cross. And then he was finished. And my feet were dry. And Christ's work was finished. And I was saved. All I could think about at that moment was, what motivation does God have for such a thing as this, this cross? What motivation does Paul see in Christ's descent on the cross? I mean, why does God play such a cruel trick as to commission His Son and to send Him off into this world only to suffer and to die such a humiliating death? Well, the motive, my friends, is love. It's a marvelous love. It's a wonderful love. It's a love like no love we've ever experienced in our life because it's unconditional and it's unselfish and it's for you and for me. Now, is there a name for that love? Is there a name? Yes. His name is Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on earth and in heaven and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you know this love, then would you follow Him, imitate His example, more in humility, more in obedience, more in servanthood. And if you don't know this love, this wonderful, marvelous love of God for you, would you invite God to take charge of your life and to let His love rule and reign? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You for the good news of the Gospel for the marvelous, wonderful love that You have shown. A love that calls us out of self-sufficiency and and ambition and sets us free to enjoy deep, intimate relationship with You. Lord Jesus, hear our prayer. Prayer to walk with You more closely. Hear our prayer to invite You in to be Lord of our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.